I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now, at last, I might find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be strengthened. This is so that I may be encouraged together with you by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now I would not have, have you unaware, brothers, that I often intended to come to you, but was prevented until now, that I might have a harvest among you also, even as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone, excuse me, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the gift of your word and the promise of your righteousness and justice. The foundations of your throne consist of both of those two things, which tells us that you are strong, powerful, and good. We rejoice now that we can gather together like this for fellowship and edification. May we learn and receive counsel from your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 So it's uh, week two of Romans, and don't ask how long we're going to be in Romans. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it may be a while. We'll see. And last week, uh, we saw Paul essentially take the gloves off, and he asserted with confidence and faith the King Jesus gospel. And not only that, it's necessary ramifications. Here's the gospel. What, that, what does that mean? And specifically, he talks about how the gospel of the kingdom challenges both the Jewish culture and the Jewish mind and the Roman culture and the Roman mind. And the, that's the historical context of what Jesus came and what he taught, and those things kind of just dovetail together. And something um, I'm fond of saying, uh, we like to say Jesus is Lord, which simply means that Jesus gets to tell Caesar what to do. And uh, the coin, uh, uh, the conversation Jesus has in, in the book of Matthew with regard to the image on the coin, and uh, the point is that the, the coin has the image of Caesar, but um, Caesar actually bears the image of God. So Caesar is told to obey, obey God. And, and that's really one of the main central focuses of that passage and what Jesus intends to communicate. So Jesus is Lord, which means he gets to tell Caesar what's to do, what to do. So the basic historical context that we covered was and is pretty straightforward. Um, Jesus is from David. He is David's Lord. This is Psalm 110.1. He is David's Lord and he's David's son. And thus, he's the rightful covenant heir to the dynastic throne. Um, Second uh, Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 both give us a vision of the promise and the covenant that God made with David. Remember, David wanted to build a house for the Lord, uh, and, and God said, well, actually, I'm going to build your house. And, and that's a great prophetic um, promise to Jesus, who is going to be the house builder. And he is the true son that builds the true house of God the people of God on earth as it is in heaven. So he's David's son and he's David's Lord. And Paul here and elsewhere, he makes it clear that the resurrection is the enthronement of Christ. 
The resurrection is the enthronement of Christ. Jesus was raised and he was declared to be the Son of God. This is just, again, what we covered from last week. So Jesus is Israel's Messiah and their Lord. And that also means by virtue of you know, basic logic, the claims of the Old Testament, because he's the Messiah, he's the world's rightful king. He's the world's rightful Lord. So Paul, he never says in any of his letters that Jesus has to come back to be king as if he were gone on a cosmic vacation. Uh, there are some very well famous pastors who say such erroneous things. Uh, in fact, one says Jesus is, is, is in voluntary exile right now. No, he's been established as king, so we need to deal with that. So he doesn't have to come back to be king. Rather, he is king, and the empty tomb is where we go to find out about it. The tomb is empty. Jesus has been enthroned. That's, that's what everyone's, um, the Paul, Peter, all the apostles, they were all making that declaration. Peter says as much in Acts 2. So the foundation then has been laid. The goal is, we saw last week in verse 5, the obedience of faith among all the nations, which is why Rome plays such a significant role. And that obedience of faith comes when the gospel is preached unashamedly. Speaking of the Roman church on the world stage, um, the apostle, he, apostle here, he introduces the meat and potatoes, as it were, of the gospel message by affirming their identity, affirming the Roman church, their identity, and we get a kind of a, you know, you might call Paul a, a softy here. He, we get a glimpse into his heart towards them, his affection for them, and then he, he ties it in and expounds on the righteousness and justice of God. So if you want to follow along, you can. I just want to summarize it as we go. And, and you can see the train of thought here. So in verse 8, he thanks God through Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the only source of thanksgiving is through Jesus Christ. He thanks God through Jesus Christ for the Roman church, and the motive for doing so lies in the fact that their faith is very real, it's very tangible, and it's widely known. It's been made known among all the nations. They are not an insignificant group of people, they are making huge waves across the land. And we know from Philippians that no doubt there were actually family members in Caesar's household who were Christians. And they were probably making an impact. And Paul's comment there, by the way, when he says household, we're talking about Caesar's immediate family. Not just some guard who you know, works down the street about a mile from Caesar's palace. You know? <laughs> that's, that's not what we're talking about. So Paul here is ecstatic. He's ecstatic because there are Christians living literally under Caesar's, Caesar's nose who declare unashamedly that Christ is Lord, even Lord over Caesar. So they're not backing, backing down. They're not intimidated by him. So the world knows about, the, um, uh, about this Roman church. They are rather conspicuous. Uh, so Paul, then he invokes God in, in, in an oath. He says they're... Um, for God is my witness, there in verse 9. He, that's an oath, by the way. He takes an oath, declaring his rather jovial demeanor towards them, and he explains how much he prays for these people that he's never met. Okay, this should humble us. When's the last time you've ever expressed the joy of praying for someone, especially someone you've never met? See, Paul wrestles 
with this desire to to get to Rome, probably praying some very serious prayers, and he's asking God to essentially will will him to go there to see them, verse 10. So in verses 11 through 13, then, we get to the heart and soul of the apostle, as he says he longs to see them so that there can be an impartation of spiritual gifts and fellowship. He simply wants to strengthen them. That's his goal. This is a church that is a fledgling church. Remember, Claudius had kicked the, much of the Jews, many, all the Jews, out of Rome. Uh, then he died, and then Nero kind of brought, it, brought them all back. And the church was just, I mean, imagine your friends being booted out just because of your ethnicity. Um, <laughs> it was quite a difficult time. So he, he wants to go and strengthen them. He knows the trouble they face, and they're living in the capital of the world at the time. There were probably, um, this is guess, but we have an idea, kind of, there were probably a, a, hundred, a couple hundred people or less, uh, a couple hundred Christians that were living in Rome during this time. So we're not talking about a massive megachurch here in Rome. It was a, a small group of people. Everybody kind of knew everybody. And they were no doubt experiencing the wrath of Rome to some degree and in varying degrees, uh, you know, living, um, living in the capital of the world at the time. So their growing movement would face persecution. So Paul wants to bless them because they have blessed him. He wants this mutual experience of encouragement in the faith, their faith and his faith, he says in verse 12. Um, when I think of like our Sunday gatherings and, and, and what that entails, the, the, I think one of the most rewarding things that you can, you can do when we're, we're eating a meal, we're talking, and it's just kind of, you know, organized chaos. <laughs> um, I think one of the beauty, beauties of it is just kind of talking to one another and hearing what's going on in your lives and business endeavors and work and, you know, projects we want to do to to uh, march around D.C. seven times and watch it fall, that sort of stuff. Um, that's like, I think that's the element that Paul has here in mind with this church. is just that genuine living before the face of God togetherness that, that you encourage one another in your faith. And that's really his heart here. So he's, he's eager to get there, he says, but he's been able, unable to do so. So Paul knows that God has entrusted him with a powerful message. And until he has fully exhausted and discharged this message, Paul basically feels as though he's in debt to the Roman church. He, he feels like he's in their, their debt. He has something to give them. He wants to make it happen. Of course, we know in verse 14 here, Paul is in debt to every man, woman, and child, the Greeks and the barbarians. The Grecian worldview was, we are Greeks, everyone else are savages. <laughs> uh, the Jewish worldview we are the covenant people, everybody else is a Gentile. So now the Christian worldview is there are those in Adam, there are those in Christ, which we'll get to in Romans 5. But, but he, he, he plays the game. There's a whole world that's out there that needs the preaching of the gospel, which is the motivating factor for him wanting to go to the capital city of the entire world and come and preach in Rome. Uh, by the way, not only does he want to encourage them in the faith, my guess is, being a godly troublemaker that he is, he would like to go straight into the White House and start preaching. Me too. But here we are. Now, remember that Paul is writing this fundraising letter. He wants to raise money for the church in Jerusalem because they're destitute. They need the help. 
But he also writes to kind of serve this, this letter serves as a corrective for some of the problems the church would have no doubt faced as it pertains to the Jewish-Gentile relationships. So he desires to reach Spain eventually. He, he mentions that later. He wants to go all the way to Spain. He's trying to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's his next, his ne- his next stop. But he wants to get there by way of Rome. But he doesn't want this letter to be viewed as being all about the money. That's not his point. He loves them, and he shows them very early on his affection for them. And this is not a thing you should ever skip over. Now, verses 16 and 17, if you have a Bible, they're probably sectioned off. Um, You might have a headline that says something about the gospel or um, the just shall live by faith. These two verses serve as the bedrock of the rest of the letter. And they, th- these two verses pack a punch. So the rest of our time is going to be mostly focused on, on those two things. So let's summarize what we see, and then we'll go from there. And we're going to do some heavy theological lifting today, so hang tight. In verse 16, Paul continues with the Greek word. The Greek word is gar, and it means for. And he says it three times in this passage. Um based on what he's just said about the Roman church and his affection for them, he clarifies something important. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Okay? He's not ashamed of the gospel. For, that's the word gar, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Um, what What is he getting at? Well, keep reading. For it is the power of God for salvation. I'm not, follow the logic, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for or because... It is the power of God for salvation or deliverance. We'll get to that. For everyone who who exercises a true and living faith, starting with the Jew. Why does he say the Jew first? Well, because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. There's a priority with God's covenant people. That's just how he did it. Um, By the way, Abraham wasn't a Jew. (laughs) Think about that. He was a pagan who came into covenant. What does it mean to be Jewish? It means to be in covenant. There's, there's, we'll get to that later in Romans 9, 10, and 11. But the way Jew, someone who is a Jew, who's Jewish, is from Judah. And that was the southern tribe, as you know. And so there's kind of a mixed uh, understanding of the 12 tribes. There were actually 13, by the way, um, with Ephraim and Manassas, who were jo- jo- uh, Joseph's sons. But there's kind of confusion. Well, what what is somebody who's Jewish? Well, today we just think of somebody who's from Israel or has some sort of Israelite connection. Um, You know, there's a lot there, but we'll we'll get to that. So then the Greeks come in. To the Jew first, then the Greek. For, because, in verse 17, in the gospel we learn that the covenant faithfulness of God is now on display from God's faithfulness to man's faithfulness. Okay, see that in your Bible where it says from faith to faith? He's saying from God's faithfulness to man's faith. And this is based on this proof text he pulls as it is written. That's Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. So here, here's his argument. Here, here's his, think about this. A is so because of B. B is so because of C. C is so because of D. That's his logic. I think this because of this, and I think that because of that, and then I think this because of this. So he, he's a rhetorician. He, he's, he's a master at rhetoric, actually. So he's, he's giving us a logical steps here. So I want to explain this. The phrase there, righteousness of God, <clears throat> you should know, 
And this was happening more so around as about 10 years ago when I was just out of seminary. And there was this huge debate going on um, with regard to this actual phrase, the righteousness of God. Dikaios and atheu is what it is in Greek. What does that even mean? Why, why is that even contentious? Um, righteousness of God. There's also no small a debate about what Paul does with Habakkuk 2.4. Because if you read in your Bible this verse, and then you go back to Habakkuk 2.4, it actually says something a little different. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Along came the Greeks and Greek culture, the Hellenization of the first century. And what did they do? They took the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, translated it into the Greek, and that, that's what we call the Septuagint or the LXS. There was LX. X. There were 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew into Greek. That was the Bible of Jesus, of the apostles. They all were Hellenized. In other words, they were immersed in Greek culture. And so they would have known the Hebrew, yes, but the Greek as well. And that's where he quotes from. So there's kind of an interesting thing there. We don't have time for that. But Paul takes liberty and using the Septuagint or the Greek translation and then applying it to his current situation with the Roman Christians. So the phrase, yes, dikaiosenetheu can be translated the righteousness of God. But what does that even mean? <laughs> so now we have to dig even further. Now, consider Psalm 71. Steve read that earlier. Psalm 71 verses 1 through 2, which no doubt this isn't controversial. Paul has this in his mind as well. I'm going to read those first two verses. Listen carefully. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. May I never be put to shame. What does Paul say? I'm not, ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Okay, so that idea is there. Deliver me in your righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. And help me escape. Incline your ear to me and save me. So think about it. In the context of Psalm 71, shame is what the people of God feel, and they feel it deeply when their enemies are triumphing over them. Okay, when the enemies of God, like, in other words, 2020 America, where the medical mafia has taken over and we are told to wear oxygen restricting masks. So think about it, like, Christ is not honored in the halls of Congress. Like we're we're so we're past that. Um, so there's like this shame almost of feeling like okay, I'm serving the living God, but what is He doing right now? Paul is emphatic. He's not ashamed at all of this gospel because what dictates and steers his life and thus should be our life is not whether or not Jesus's enemies are exerting unrighteous power, but rather what should direct us is the foundation of the gospel and the promises there. In other words, we're not newspaper exegetes. We don't look at the newspaper headlines and think, oh no, things are getting bad. Jesus, hurry up and get here. No, things are getting bad, so church, repent and we'll fix it. That's the message. So he's not ashamed for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the, to the Greek, the Gentile. So there's no shame. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm unashamed because there's no reason for shame. There's no reason for it. Why? Because Christ is king. And this message of salvation is all about deliverance and worldwide dominion. So Paul, <laughs> Paul's not saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel 
Because it's the power of God to take everybody to heaven someday. Or, you know, salvation we should think of in terms of real-time historical deliverance, which is always, a, that's the Jewish way of understanding it. Um, salvation has always, always been this rescue a rescue of God's people from pagan oppression, whether that was Egypt or Babylon or the Persians or the Romans, the Greeks, any of them. So Jesus is the reality. Caesar is this parody. So there's, there's one rightful Lord and Savior of the world, and guess what? It ain't Caesar. <laughs> so Paul takes the glove off, gloves off. So the, so the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all of the believing ones, and the reason it is the power of salvation is based on what he says in the next verse, in verse 17. Look, look at your Bible again. For in it, in the gospel of God's power and deliverance, in this, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What is going on here? The point the Apostle Paul makes is this. The death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah um, both form the linchpin of this grand apocalyptic event that happened in the first century. We have to get it out of our minds that, oh yeah, Jesus died and was raised. Yeah, that, that did happen. No, that was a world-shifting event. Nothing is the same. Christ's death and resurrection is God's disclosure to the world of something tremendous um, to an unsuspecting world, namely the revelation of the justice and righteousness of God. Long before we can talk about justification by faith, which is what we'll get to in um, chapter 3 of Romans, we have to keep in mind, like, what does the gospel actually tell us? What does it actually reveal? It reveals that in the death and resurrection, God has demonstrated and shown all of us like very clearly what righteousness and justice looks like. What, what we call it sometimes in our circles, the ethical judicial understanding of Scripture, the righteousness and justice of God. The, that's what we find. So the righteousness here, the righteousness of God here is not primarily the status of being justified that we receive, though Paul does intimate it here, and he does explain it more in Romans 3. And it is a secondary outcome. But the righteousness of God, the Dikaiosinetheu, is God's action in fulfilling the covenant promises, which is now unveiled, or he says here, revealed, for the world to see. All right, I'm going to say that again, because don't miss this. What is the righteousness of God? What would you say? Well, it's God's perfect goodness. Or what is righteousness? Well, it's at rightness. You're, you're at something is, that wasn't right is now right. What is the righteousness of God? Righteous, righteousness and justice in, in English are two separate words that start with two different letters. One's way longer than the other. But in a Greek mind, they're the same. They're nuanced, but they're basically the same. Both of those words in Greek have the same uh, root words. Righteousness and justice go together. So this action of God in Christ in fulfilling all of the covenant promises is now here for the world to see. That's what the death and resurrection is. So it's unveiled from faith to faith, which means from Christ's faithfulness to human faithfulness. Okay, none of us can be faithful to God unless Christ was first faithful. There's an order there. 
So let me try to say this another way. In the gospel, we see God's faithfulness to his covenant promises on full display because the gospel only comes about based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who established in his death and resurrection the justice of God on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? In the gospel, we see God's faithfulness. You know, people say, well, Jesus died for me while he was hanging on the cross. He had you in his mind. What well, may or may not have been true in the mind of God. He knows who his elect are. He gets that. But the cross and the resurrection were primarily God's faithfulness being demonstrated. God is faithful to Abraham. God is faithful to Isaac. He's faithful to David. He's faithful to Israel. That's the crux of the death and resurrection. That's the righteousness of God. And it only comes about through his atonement and his resurrection. That's the justice of God. That's the thought process. So Paul pulls from Habakkuk in order to use Habakkuk's situation and applying it to the Roman church. He says, the just shall live by faith. History lesson. Habakkuk is one of those verses. How many of you have read that this week? Ha <laughs> ha! Didn't think so. No one reads Habakkuk. Uh, we should, though. It's not a popular book. But when you go back to Habakkuk's day, Habakkuk, there, there's all this pagan oppression that, how, you know, how exactly are we going to deal with this? That's what he's wrestling with. There's all this pagan. The Chaldeans were breathing threats upon them. They were marching against Israel, and hope was dwindling very fast. The Israel is not in a good position. So why would God use a pagan nation or an army to oppress and or teach or discipline his people? That's the question we should be asking every day right now until abortion is abolished. Why are the pagans ruling the hen house? Because the church doesn't realize there is a hen house and they have a responsibility. So that's Habakkuk. He's talking all about that. God's righteousness or his justice is called into question, which is what Psalm 71 was telling us too. So the situation is, is the same. The Roman church is under the nose of Caesar, the most powerful man in the universe outside of Christ, what are they supposed to do? Well, Habakkuk declares in the rest of, of chapter 2 that God's people simply must believe that God does and will punish the idolatrous and violent nation and that God will, in the midst of it, remember mercy and deliver Israel. That's Habakkuk chapter 3. So Paul's point here in Romans 1 is striking when you compare it to Habakkuk's situation a thousand years before, less than a thousand years. So faced with rampant pagan idolatry, injustice, just overall arrogance, my goodness, is that not America right now? Any first century Jew would have prayed and begged for God's righteousness to be revealed, that's Psalm 71, so that the pagans would be humbled and God's people would be saved and delivered. That's the paradigm. And the gospel deals with it. Paul, Paul says this essentially. I'm going to paraphrase my own version. I'm not ashamed at all by the gospel of the kingdom because the gospel is proof of God's power to deliver his people. And despite the Roman idolatry and or American idolatry going on all around you, and there is plenty of it, God's agenda of justice is now here commanding your obedience and faithfulness. And when you do this and proclaim it, people are taken captive, and the world is put back together. That's what he's saying. 
Jesus has come, this new age has broken into history, the principalities and the power of sin, death and darkness have been dismantled, and the command of the gospel is a summons to give allegiance to this newly established king. So the entirety of your being and your life is now to be aligned with the king. And the very thing upon which all of this rests is the resurrection of Israel's Messiah. So let me, let me explain it another way, friends, as we try to land the plane. We are told here that the just shall live by faith. That's a quote from Habakkuk. Clearly, Paul's aim is to encourage the Roman church, and thus us here today, to understand the beauty of the gospel and in so doing, reorient our lives in light of it. That's the command. So we too are surrounded by pagan idolatry. Um, I just, you, you have atheists that say, we need to get rid of the, the motto on the money, the, in God we trust. And, um, and, and, and conservatives and Christians say, well, no, 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 that's there for a reason. We need, we need that. Well, we don't need it. If the almighty dollar, which is not backed by gold anymore, thanks to Nixon, <laughs> Uh, if we don't need it, if that money is going to be funding abortion, if that mon- money is going to be funding all sorts of injustice, we don't need the motto. The motto means nothing on paper if it's not in our hearts. So we need this encouragement that Paul gives us here. We need it. And notice the phrase is not, the just shall be saved and go to heaven by faith. Or the just shall be raptured away by faith. No, the just shall live by faith. And look, you, do whatever you want as far as emphasizing any aspect of that sentence. Okay, The just shall live by faith, or the just shall live by faith, um, or the just shall live by faith. It doesn't matter where you emphasize it, but I think Paul's saying the just shall live by faith, and here's why. Given what we just observed about Habakkuk's day, Paul, he draws on the prophet to establish his major thesis regarding the justice and righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel. There is no doubt that justice being revealed is a grace. The fact that Jesus Christ came, died, was raised, that is the grace. He wasn't obligated to do that. God did it. He made a promise to Abraham. Paul's going to bring up Abraham a couple times later. But he made a promise to Abraham. All of that's now here. And it's only by God's grace that we get to partake of it. So the big theme that Paul addresses is the fact that the coming of Christ into history did two things. One, it reaffirmed that God's covenant with Abraham, which promised to rescue the whole world from evil and corruption, is now fixated on Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, like That's a check that God cashed. He wrote it with Abraham, cashed it in Christ. Like that's that's done. That transaction's over. Two, Jesus brought the future judgment of God forward in order to declare his people just or righteous. Okay, listen. You in Christ, you get your final judgment verdict today. That's the wonders of the gospel. You get the final judgment verdict today. So in a cosmic sense, God has always intended to put the world back together, and it was always understood as God's covenant justice, the righteousness of God. If somebody comes up to you on the street, because people do this all the time, and ask you, what is the righteousness of God? 
you should say, well, it's the covenant justice of God. That's what you should say. So if that happens tomorrow, you're good to go now. You are now equipped. So the, the key to the whole thing is faith. So in order to benefit from God's covenant justice, one must repent and believe the gospel. You must be faithful or full of faith to what it is God has established in Christ. And the person you must be faithful towards is Jesus and him crucified and raised. So that's the obedience of the faith that verse 5 covers. So, so the obvious point, and we're going to see this next week, is that man has been completely and utterly, in every possible way, unfaithful to God. It, it was God, if you recall the story of Abraham, it was God who walked through the split into animals, not Abraham. Remember Abraham falls asleep and then the burning pot walks through and it was God working, walking through, covenants were cut, and, and basically God said, if I don't fulfill this covenant with you, I will be split in two. You can hack me to death. I broke the covenant. I deserve to die. But only God walked through it, meaning that God took it upon himself to uphold his end of the covenant deal. So man could never do it. We could never do it. But Jesus, the man, steps in and he does just that. He takes on himself the justice of the covenant, which is why you and I need his death. And what happens when you believe on Christ, kids? What happens when you believe on Christ? You're forgiven, right? You are brought into His covenant, uh, symbolized in baptism. You're brought into Christ. You are brought into Him. But the other thing that happens is you live by faith. You live by faith, which means every lawful calling, job, purpose that you have is to bring that faith to fruition, okay? You are never going to change out a toilet that doesn't require faith. Not only in God, but maybe to get through the mess. (laughs) Okay, you're never going to do that. Every lawful pursuit is now immersed, bathed, saturated, and soaked in God-given faith. So we we are justified in Christ to live differently. That's the whole point. So kids, why do you need the death of Christ? So that you can live differently. You can live differently. See, God's faithfulness to the covenant in Christ's actions is for you to live a different life from the rest of the unbelieving world. You are set apart. You are declared just and righteous in the courtroom of God so that you, parents, could give your kids a Christian education and worldview. You are just, um, men... Uh, so that you can be a godly servant husband. You are justified in Christ so that you can fight for justice in the public square. You are just because Christ was the just one taking upon the yoke of God's covenant on himself so that you could be brought in and be healed. That's the point. Your faith is not a mere profession. It's a profession immersed in a life of obedience. After all, that's what living faith does. Let's end with this to bring the point home. When we exercise holy inspired faith, we are considered just. And when this legal verdict happens, our aim then becomes the healing of the nations. And it starts with you as an individual and every rank and file Christian, because that's all of us, exercising godly faith in our work, 
in our school, in our play, and pursuit of bringing the nation to its knees in repentance. See, that is the gospel in motion. And that is why the gospel must go forth. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live, move, and have their being by a faithfulness that rests upon the faithfulness of Christ. So apart from Christ, we are nothing. But guess what? In Christ, you have everything. Let's pray. Father, you've been good to us by demonstrating your faithfulness through Christ's death and resurrection. And we do not um, assume that, presume upon it. Uh, God, keep us from any presumptuous thinking. We know that apart from you, we are nothing. Apart from Christ, our Savior, we are nothing. But we also know that in Christ, we have everything. We have the deliverance. We have faith. And we've been restored to you so that we could live by this faith. So that every area of life, every calling, every purpose, everything we put our hands to do, every lawful pursuit becomes now an exercise of faith, an exercise of faithfulness. And all of it because of your work, Jesus, your work on the cross, your empty tomb. So Heavenly Father, would your spirit guide us and direct us? Would we um, be people of faith, people who are just and living by a true and alive faith each day? In Christ's name I pray, amen.